Those of you who are standing, remain standing, and the rest of you, let's stand together as we read our text today out of Matthew chapter 14, beginning at verse 13. When Jesus heard about John, he withdrew in a boat to a deserted place by himself. When the crowds learned this, they followed him on foot from the cities. When Jesus arrived and saw a large crowd, he had compassion for them and healed those who were sick. That evening, his disciples came and said to him, this is an isolated place and it's getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, there's no need to send them away. You give them something to eat. I'm sure he said that with a smile. They replied, we have nothing here except five loaves of bread and two fish. He said, bring them here to me. He ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves of bread and the two fish looked up to heaven, blessed them and broke the loaves apart and gave them to his disciples. Then the disciples gave them to the crowds. Everyone ate until they were full and they filled 12 baskets with the leftovers. About 5,000 men, plus women and children, had eaten. This is the gospel, the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This is obviously a very familiar text to some of us, maybe too familiar. I have two primary rememberings of this text, um, one from early life, one from a bit later. The first was in Sunday school, and I remember sitting on the ground in front of the big green felt board, and the teacher would put Jesus on the green felt and loaves of bread and tiny little fish. And then like five people. I always wondered why she didn't put the 5,000 people on the felt board. And then my little budding theological mind wondered why it was a rule in the Bible not to count the women and children. It didn't seem fair. Actually, one might summarize part of my career as making sure that women and children get on the felt board. My second memory is a class in seminary. When we learned a biblical interpretation and we were talking about uh, the early 20th century and the way that they interpreted the Bible, And my professor t 
talked about a particular hermeneutic called demythologization. Say it with me. Now, I should say they were not teaching that this was the correct way to interpret, just that it existed. Basically, these biblical interpreters had decided that the Bible was full of myth. And so they felt like it was their job to take all of the myth out of the Bible. To spare you the details, let me give you the example that was given in class for how demythologization would interpret the feeding of the 5,000. They would say that when people saw the generosity of the little boy, they were moved to give to others, and so they all took out the lunches that they were holding in secret, pulled them out, and shared with everyone. And there was so much food that even basketfuls were left over. And the parable is one of the generosity of the people. No miracle, no myth. One of the problems, of course, is these demythologizers also took the resurrection out of a literal interpretation. Well, that's certainly not how I'm going to interpret our text for today. You can breathe a sigh of relief, a theologian who believes in miracles. Thanks be to God. With that said, I need to say that I am disappointed in the lectionary for today. I'll rephrase that. I am very disappointed in the lectionary today. Um, in case you don't realize, we as a church, like many, many churches, follow a prescribed reading of scripture. And the lectionary this week went from Brent's tiny little parables, skips over a whole long story, and all of a sudden, here we are, on a grassy knoll, getting something to eat. Why skip the backstory, the gruesome but necessary backstory? You see, without the backstory, we find Jesus who is a little tired, needs to get away. And the insistent people follow him, and he gives in, and he heals some folks, and they sit down, and he teaches them, and then he feeds them because there is no Burger King in the area. There we have it, the feeding of the 5,000, which, including women and children, who are never counted, by the way, was at least 15,000. Did I mention that? You see, I've never understood why they didn't include the 15,000. It makes Jesus look better. And isn't that we are, what we are supposed to do as Christians? Make Jesus look better to our consumerized culture? Make people look at him, make him more popular. Certainly a free meal is appealing. 
Shouldn't we try to sell Jesus as a means of all sorts of good stuff in people's lives? Just a thought. In case I'm not being obvious, I'm being sarcastic. In our text, if we jump from the little parables that Brent preached from to the feeding of the 5,000, we could get that kind of trite interpretation. Because we don't read what was going on before the feeding. We need the backstory. We need to know exactly what would cause Jesus to seek out solitude at this specific time. We need to know exactly what he was experiencing. So let me tell you the rest of the story, which is actually the first part of this story. After a rather wild birthday party, Herod found himself backed into a corner by a very shrewd woman and her daughter who tricked him into saying that he would give them anything that they desired. And so they requested the head of John the Baptist who was in prison. The head of John the Baptist. And we know that the head was brought to the woman and her girl on a silver platter. We are told that John's disciples come and bury the body. And in this book of Matthew, it adds that they went and told Jesus. And when Jesus heard this, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place. John the Baptist, his ally in the kingdom of God, John the Baptist, the one who had proclaimed that Jesus was the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist, who had baptized Jesus. John the Baptist, his own cousin, had been executed under horrible circumstances, demeaning circumstances, meaningless circumstances. And we must remember at this point that Jesus is fully human. And so Jesus was bereaved, grief-stricken. He needed time alone. He needed solitude, time to think and to pray and to reflect and to mourn. Do you ever wonder if Jesus knew about the birthday party? And what would happen? Do you ever wonder why he didn't stop it? Do you ever wonder why God doesn't stop all sorts of things? It is hard not to bring COVID-19 to church with us. 
I don't mean literally. But in our spirits. These days, it is hard to ignore all the pain around us. It is hard not to feel for those who suffer. Hard not to experience in our own lives all the ways that things are different. Hard not to be very, very aware of all the losses that have happened. Even the loss of people we know. It comes closer and closer and closer. Do you ever feel a bit like Jacob? I do, wrestling with all the questions that remain unanswered, feeling a bit beat up with all the lamenting we need to be doing, limping around with a figurative bad hip after fighting all night with God. But are we brave enough as Jacob to ask for a blessing, to ask our heavenly parent for a fish instead of a snake? I think Jesus needed to wrestle with some of these questions after facing the fate of John the Baptist, a completely meaningless death in light of how it happened. And Jesus mourned, needed to be alone, tries to get away, takes a boat, but the crowds prevented him from attending to his own needs. They followed him, hounded him, demanded his time and attention. I am quite the introvert. I know. Surprising. When I am dealing with some aspect of my life that is very hard, I need to be alone or with one or two close friends. And if I feel like people are demanding of me, clawing for my attention, unaware, of course, that I am struggling, I get frustrated and angry. On the inside, of course, I was raised by a very stoic mother. But I get angry and frustrated and I feel like I haven't had food all day or even a Snickers bar. And I want to cry out, leave me alone, people. But Jesus was different. We are told that if Instead of being annoyed or frustrated by the crowd in light of his own needs, Jesus was moved with compassion for them. Jesus does not come to the moment of the feeding of the 5,000 on a high. He comes to it mourning and troubled and distraught and deeply grieved. And yet he was moved with compassion for the multitude. The feeding of the 5,000 was not an act of convenience because Jesus had a hungry, hangry crowd on his hands that needed to eat something. It is an act 
of sheer self-giving, even when he had needs. Despite his own pain, Jesus acted with compassion on a people like sheep without a shepherd. It is an act of deep self-giving, not when he was full, but when he was depleted and when he was empty, he gave. Something radically changed in my life when I really, really got a hold of the idea that God is a self-giving God. I grew up, maybe like some of you, thinking that the main part about God was how demanding he was. He never seemed satisfied with my efforts to reach perfection. How he gave all sorts of commands to follow or else. And we all knew what the or else really meant. God was a taskmaster, rather randomly giving commands. Perhaps he could be some other kind of God, but for whatever reason, he had chosen primarily to be taskmaster, and I was stuck with it. And so I acted out of sheer obedience, out of no other reason than fear. I've been listening to an audible book. This is new for me. And so I scrolled down and picked a book that I've heard a lot about but hadn't read. And I wanna read for you a short excerpt from this memoir. I was lying on my bed, the writer says, watching the shadow of my feeble lamp cast on the ceiling. When I heard my father's voice at the door, instinctively I jerked to my feet as a kind of salute, but I wasn't sure what to do. There was no precedent for this. My father had never visited my room before. I've been praying, he said. I've been praying about your decision to go to college. The Lord has told me to tell you of my testimony. He is displeased with you. You have cast aside his blessing to whore after man's knowledge. His wrath is stirred against you, and it will not be long in coming. This came in chapter 15. The backstory of this quote was chapter after chapter after chapter of the father's wrong decisions that had cost his family much. Broken bones, burning flesh, brain damage, and nearly death. All because the father was stubborn and had to do things his own way. The irony is, certainly, that if anyone deserved the wrath of God, 
It was him. By the way, she goes to college. The interesting thing I believe that this illustrates is that whenever someone uses God's wrath on others, they are usually trying to control what they cannot control. It's sad, isn't it? How many people still live like that? Believing God is a tyrannical wrath dispenser when a very, very different God is right under our noses. Listen to an important quote by N.T. Wright. When God looks at sin, what he sees is what a violin maker would see if the player were to use his lovely creation as a tennis racket. But here is the difference. In many expressions of pagan religion, the humans have to try to pacify an angry deity. But that's not how it happens in Israel's scriptures. The biblical promises of redemption have to do with God himself acting because of his unchanging, unshakable love for his people. God's desire for us is that the violin he has given us, the self that he has given us, fulfills the purpose for which it is created. And we can only do that through grace. When I finally got a hold of the reality that God is a self-giving God, I began to see it all over scripture. Here again, the word of the Lord from our psalm. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. And his compassion is over all that he has made. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The Lord is just in all his ways and kind in all his doings. Why does it take many of us so long to get this? That God does not hate us because of sin, but that God hates sin because it hurts us who he loves. And that God in Christ poured out his life unto death out of love so that we might be healed and reconciled, and recreated, and comforted, and given grace. You see, the story of the feeding 
is not Jesus doing an act out of convenience, but one with deep, deep meaning. Because Jesus, despite the immensity of his own grieving pain, had compassion on the people and met their very real need. In a way, my friends, we can connect the feeding of the thousands to Christ's act on the cross. We must understand that we misunderstand the cross if we think it is about wrath and God's desire to control us. Here is the backstory. Jesus, despite the immensity of his own excruciating pain on the cross, had compassion on us and met our deepest need by dying himself, by depriving himself of emptying himself of all but love. And what is the backstory of Christ's willingness to die? He was sent from a God whose greatest characteristic is love. And through the cross, the love of God helps us reach his purposes to know ourselves forgiven, to know that we have been reconciled with God, to know that his recreating touch has reached our inner being to redeem in us whatever that backstory might have been in our lives. This, the love of God that transforms us, is our new backstory that allows us then, and only then, perhaps, to be sent into the world with Christ's love, with Christ's compassion, to meet the needs of our multitude. We come to communion this morning. And I want you to be aware of some things as we partake together. Jesus is literally here through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is here to feed you. You don't have to earn or do anything to be worthy of it. 
you can come exactly how you are. You won't get a little fish and some bread today. But you will receive the symbols of God's care. You receive bread and cup. The most exquisite but most common symbol of the body and blood of Christ that died on a cross. In one of the liturgies based on the communion liturgy of John Wesley, it simply says this, come and receive whatsoever grace you need. Can you name the whatsoever grace that you need today? Jesus will give it to you. Be assured that God in Christ, through the Holy Spirit, comes all the way to you. And so be still. And receive whatsoever grace you need. Let's pray. Oh, loving God, who lavishes your love on us, we pray this morning that you would receive, first of all, our confession of need for you. We cannot do this life without you. We cannot do this particular time in life without you. We confess to you that your Holy Spirit needs to continue to shape us and make us after your image. And we confess to you the ways that we continue to fail you. But we do not confess only to feel our guilt. We confess with genuine and deep hope that you wipe away our sins, that you cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That you transform us through your sanctifying grace and enable us to be all that you have created us to be. And so we come this morning to receive the symbols of body and blood because we are a needy people and we are hungry for you. Lord, I pray that as we receive these emblems of your love, that you would make them for us the body and blood of Christ, the means of grace to feed us 
And so we consecrate them to you and ask you to bring them to life in us. You are worthy of all our praise. You are holy. But you so love the world that you gave your only son. And in faith, we believe in him unto everlasting life. As you take your emblems before you, let me remind you that the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it. Just like his body would be broken for us. And he said, take and eat for you. Let us eat together with deep thanksgiving for self-giving God. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup and he lifted it and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for you. And we believe that as Christ died bleeding, it was the very means for us to live in this new covenant through his grace. And so take and drink and be thankful. Thank you. 